0: Hey, this is John Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Wood of Life Church in the nation's capital. I want to personally thank you for taking time out to listen to our podcast today. It's our prayer that you're inspired and that your life is changed for the better while listening. So go ahead, enjoy today's message. But I am starting a new series today that he will continue next week. It is called Cow Tipping. So my title for my sermon today is Living the Christ Life with an All-In Mentality. I don't know if anyone here has ever heard of cow tipping and or maybe participated in attempting some cow tipping. Uh, If you don't know what this is, it usually involves a group of teenagers. And I may or may not have had a group of friends who attempted this as a teenager. But you go out in the middle of the night, usually trying to find a sleeping cow that's standing up. And uh, spoiler alert, cows do not sleep standing up, apparently. But the goal is you find a sleeping cow standing up and go attempt to push it over just for fun and for laughs uh, to see what happens. But the thing is, if you have ever tried to push over a cow, it cannot be done. <laughs> it's just it, You can't even budget it, must let, much less damage it, damage it. So here's the thing. If you want to eat steak, you're going to have to do something else besides pushing over a cow. It's not going to do it. It's going to require a much bigger commitment and one that you cannot reverse. So I want to talk to you today about going all in. I want to read this my, my passage from my sermon today, Luke chapter 9, verse 62. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Can we pray this morning? Lord Jesus, we just put our attention on you. God, we ask that you'd speak to us today through your word. Father, our hearts are open. Lord God, I pray that you would anoint the things that I say. Father, that you would inspire us, that you would challenge us to live bigger for you. Lord God, that you would grow us Father, that Your miraculous hand would be upon us today, that You would do what only You can do today. God, we give You space, and Lord Jesus, we ask You to change us and grow us. We give it to You in Your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 You know it's been uh, it's been a hot summer so far. i right, everyone melting in the heat a little bit. I read. Uh, I read on the news that it's been over 120 degrees in Arizona, in Phoenix, Arizona, for like the past three, four weeks, something like that now, which is crazy hot. But I do know something about that. I grew up in Arizona in that summer heat and it's like in that heat i don't know if any of you grew up in heat like that but you get in your car and then your hands get burnt on the steering wheel and your backside gets burnt on the leather seats if you ever were to try to like walk outside barefoot your feet just immediately get scalded you can't go outside it's like opening the door is like opening the door to the oven and the heat just hits you in the face it just smacks you in the face right it's hot So the only thing you can do when it's that hot outside. Like, the only reason to go outside is to get in the pool. That's it. So everyone has a pool. That's all you can do through the summer months is just get in the pool and try to swim. So here's the thing. In Arizona, they don't heat the pools. I think probably most people here, if they have a pool, it's probably heated. But there, you just wait for it to warm up because the sun will warm it up over time slowly. But it gets hot a lot quicker than the pool gets hot. So usually by May, you're starting to like, it's hot. You're ready to get in the pool, but the pool is still pretty cold. And so there's two ways to get in the pool. And one way, the classic way, this was the way my mother always got in the pool, is like an inch at a time. Any toe dippers, like you start with just a toe, and then give yourselves a couple minutes until you get used to it, and then it's like a little bit further in down to the ankle, and then you stand there for a few minutes, so you kind of get used to it, and then another inch or two up in take another step down. If we were in the pool for an hour, it'd take my mom like 45 minutes just to get in. Cause you know, it's like by inches and then you get stuck usually right around here, right about hip level. It, you get stuck there for probably half an hour before you're ready to like get the guts to go the rest of the way in, right? That's the the toe dipper method to get in the pool. But if you're brave, if you're courageous, the way to get in is you just jump. You just take the plunge. You go all in and you freeze for like about a minute and then you swim around a little bit and then you're okay. Any, any jump in plungers here? Who's a toe dipper here? Yeah, yeah, a couple of you, you understand what this is. But we struggle with that risk, right? It's a scary thing, jumping in the pool. I don't know if you've ever toe dipped into weight loss. You're like, "All right, well maybe maybe I'm going to think about this today. I'll just I'll cut out sugar but just for today. We'll see how it goes." <laughs> You're probably not going to be successful, right? Anyone ever done that? Like, I'll, I'm gonna go on a date. For, I'm gonna, I'm going to go on a diet but only for the next meal. That's it. That's all I'm committing to. <laughs> We're pretty well guaranteed it's going to go nowhere. You see, God calls us into these big, scary faith decisions quite a bit that are all in risky things. I want to look at a story today together. And this is a story of Elisha's big, scary, all in moment when he was called. This comes in the book of 1 Kings and where it comes into the story is a moment after Elijah, the prophet Elijah, we're talking about Elisha, but the prophet Elijah, another man had had this big showdown. He was a prophet of Israel, he had a showdown with the prophets of Baal, the false the false gods of that region, and had this big thing where, where God had showed up, and he became very unpopular after that, and went on the run because he had challenged the powers that be, and he w- went on the run into the wilderness. Wilderness uh, after that showdown at Mount Carmel wound up in a cave at a place called Horeb all by himself and he stayed there for a few days, kind of down a little bit low, like God, you showed up big, but it's just me I'm the only person left here and he complained to God, God showed up in that cave moment for him and uh, gave him some some instructions and said, it's not just you, you're not all by yourself, you're not alone. And said, go do a couple of things. But one of the things he said for Elijah to do is go find a man named Elisha and anoint him as his successor, as the next prophet of Israel. So we're going to pick up the story there in 1 Kings chapter 19. In verse 19, it says, so Elijah went from there, from Horeb, and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Now, the Bible tells us this because it's significant, right? There's always a reason for it to be there. This is an agrarian society. So it's a, a bunch of farmers built around farming. So this man, Elisha, his family had 12 yoke of oxen, at least 12, with 12 plows. It is a big field he's plowing, right? He's got a lot of land, and he's got a lot of animals, and he's leading a team of people who are all plowing together, 12 oxen. So it's a big farm. It's a a wealthy, prosperous family that Elijah has come up to. So one thing for us to remember here is that Elisha in this culture is his parents' retirement plan. Let's keep reading. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. So when the Bible talks about this cloak here. It's not like, oh, Elisha looks cold. Let me give you an extra piece of clothing to keep warm here. This is actually a significant thing. He's, he's handing a cloak of authority. So in this culture, the way that a prophetic mantle was carried from person to person was through this kind of investiture into an office of the prophet through a cloak or a mantle that went on the next, the next guy. And it's interesting here. Elijah, he didn't say one word to Elisha. He just walks by, puts his cloak on him, keeps going, keeps walking. And Elisha recognizes something important has happened, right? So it says in verse 20, Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? That's an interesting little phrase right here, what have I done to you? But essentially what's happening, Elijah wanted Elisha to think about what had just happened. He wanted him to process the significance of the moment before he figured out what was happening next. It had to be Elisha's own free will, his own choosing, this calling. Not coercion, not restraint, constraint. Then verse 21 tells us what happened. It says, so Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. I don't think you can get more all in than this. It wasn't like he's like, hey, let me kiss my family goodbye, and I'll just, you know, grab my bag and we'll go. It was like, no. What happened is essentially Elijah cashes in his 401K, his retirement plan, and then gives it all away and says, okay, there's no going back. There's no backup plan here. Everyone in his family knew about his commitment because he literally kills those oxen that were their source of supply. And then he uses the plowing equipment as the fuel for his barbecue, and then has a barbecue and feeds everybody in the town with those animals. You know, everybody knew this commitment was like, this is going to be very public. This is going to be a big deal. Everyone's going to know so everyone can hold me accountable to this is the choice that I have made as uh, as going all in with Elijah. You know, his family must have given him permission to do this. Right. So I think implied here is that his family's blessing. What's going on? And that must have been an incredible sacrifice. There's some faith there for parents, too, who are recognizing the call of God on Elisha to say, okay, you were our retirement plan. You were the way we were going to survive, but we're going to trust God. If if this is his plan, he's going to take care of it. It says, then Elisha set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. You know, he's going here from being the heir apparent to this wealthy farming family to becoming the servant of this man who was now on the run from the king and queen of that region, kind of an unpopular guy. So that's a pretty significant drop in social status. You know, I I think most of of us would say, all right, if you want that from me, you're going to have to earn that kind of loyalty from me. Do you think Elisha really knew what he was signing up for? You know, the book of 1 Kings was not written. 2 Kings wasn't written. Elisha didn't know what this was going to, how this was all going to turn out for him. But he took a risk. He took a really big risk, right? I want you to think about the economics of this decision. I want to tell you, not one of your financial planners here today would say that this was a good idea, what Elisha just did. Not one of them, right? We're taught to minimize risk, to diversify your investments. Don't go all in on any one thing in case that one thing tanks, right? Do a couple things. Hedge your bets. So hedging your bets means that while you put a bet on this thing, you also put a bet on the opposite thing. So if this loses, then this is going to win, and you're going to minimize your losses in some way because something's going to win that you are betting on. You know, I know none of you here have played poker before, right? You're all too holy to play poker. (laughs) But I think poker gives us a good way to think about our human nature and how we handle risk. So if you go all in in poker, you're either going to win big or you're going to lose big. One of the two, right? And you only go all in when you're confident that you're going to win that hand. But being all in on something requires that you are all out on something else right? It means that everything that you have is going into this one thing, this one risk. So Elisha put all his chips in with Elijah. He said, I'm gonna go all in. I'm gonna kill these cows. I'm gonna burn these plows. And we are all in on this future, on this calling. Takes a lot of faith. I think we tend to think of faith as sort of this mysterious, magical gift to either believe or not believe, to, th- to just think that something's true. And a lot of us, when we struggle with doubtful thoughts, beat us, ourselves up for it. Like we're not spiritual enough, or there's something wrong with us. We're not Christian enough. We're not holy enough. Something's wrong. But I want us to think about faith in maybe a different way today, what that means, if faith is believing, but faith is also going all in with Jesus. Faith is about the courage to move forward with Jesus, even when we're not sure about what the outcome is going to be. Paul talked about faith in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He said, we ought to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. So there's something in here that talks about how it grows, how it strengthens. He said, And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. There's a lot of opposition that the early church had to deal with in that day. And Paul said, There's faith in the midst of that, faith in the midst of that risk. That word he uses that's translated in the the English word faith is the Greek word pistis, pistis in Greek. And that means belief or the act of believing, the commitment that accompanies genuine belief. But there's other elements to that word. There's other overtones to it that don't necessarily come out in our English word. It also means faithfulness, reliability, loyalty, allegiance, trust, even an oath or a promise. It's saying, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to make a decision to be loyal. I'm going to make a decision to put my commitment into this. have any sports fans here in the house? A couple? Yes. Greg is a diehard from birth Phillies fan. I think he was born into Phillies fandom, Philadelphia Eagles, American football. Uh, My husband, John, is a... (laughs) Hey. Don't judge him for it. My husband, John, he is more of a uh, Richmond in Australia, Australian rules football fan, diehard. That's what he grew up watching, is Australian rules football. If you have no idea what it is, Google it sometime. It's crazy. It is what you think Australian will be like. I am uh, I'm not as much a fan of sports. When sports is on TV, I am a fan of competitive online shopping. Prime day. That's more where my loyalties lie when sports is on, (laughs) but I get it, right? Everyone's. If you grow up with that, you have a team, and there's there's faith in that team. There's confidence in that team that even if they haven't won in a really long time, that you're still loyal, that you're still going to be passionate about it, that you're still going to be all in with it. You're going to have faith that they're going to still win. Like they can still do it. They might be the worst team in the league, but they can still do it. They can still be the underdogs and come back up. They can come back, right? So I lived in Chicago in uh, 2016. And Chicago is home to the baseball team called the Cubs. And there are a lot of Chicagoans who are diehard Cubs fans. Any Cubs fans in the room? Nope, didn't think so. <laughs> But let me tell you, uh, Cubs fans, they go all out. They are passionate, right? They put on the, the jerseys and the blue and the white, and they paint their face, paint their chest, paint their hair, and just, bah, ah, go for it. But you know how long it had been since the Cubs had actually won the World Series? It had been since 1908, a long time, 108 years since they had won the tournament. Long time, right? But they're still full of faith. They're still passionate. And it come to 2016, they actually won the World Series. And I mean, it was like one of those, everyone partied all night and turned over cars and just went nuts, absolutely came unglued because of how excited and passionate they were. But you know what? I think this is a lot what faith looks like. It's this kind of tenacious, audacious passionate loyalty that says, no matter what, no matter what the risk is, no matter what it looks like, I'm going to choose to believe. I'm going to choose to continue to be loyal, to stay true to this. And you know what? If you believe that Jesus is Lord, that he's the world's rightful sovereign, your loyalty shifts to God's kingdom. That's what faith becomes. Faith shifts your citizenship to the kingdom of God. You become a a citizen. And this faith demands our all. It demands our loyalty. We look to Jesus as the ultimate champion, as the protector and the provider of all of our needs, the provider of our salvation, the provider of grace. And in turn, we give him our allegiance. We choose to put our confidence in Jesus. That's what faith means. Jesus described this to us. You know, he said, right standing with God comes by grace Accessed through faith in Jesus, paid for by the blood of Jesus. It's a free gift, but it will cost us everything. It's free, but it will demand our everything. You can't be half hearted. You can't be half in, half out. It demands our all. Jesus said it in Mark 12, verse 30. He said, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength. There's a whole lot of all in this verse, right? There's a lot of all. A lot of all that is involved in this call. You know, all our heart, all of our emotions, who we are, our passion, the deepest parts of us, all of our soul, our spiritual awareness tuned into him. All of our mind, our thinking focused on kingdom of God. All of our bodies, the way that we behave, the way that we interact with the world, everything loving God, given to God, given in passionate loyalty to God. But there's a lot of things, I think, that can hold us back from this kind of expression that Jesus calls us into. I want us to think a little bit about this today. What are the things that hold us back from giving our all to Jesus? What loyalties do we have that wrestle for that number one place? In Luke chapter 9, Jesus called people to follow him. And you know what? We love the loving and the kind Jesus. We like to focus on that. And he is. It's his kindness and his love that draws us to him. He's infinitely gracious towards us. His heart is towards us. That's who he is. But he also calls us to a very high standard. He's not just asking for a little bit of us. It says in verse 57 of Luke nine, as they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. In other words, are you willing to give that up? He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Man, that's a high standard. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I think this guy must have thought I'm giving the spiritual answer here. I just said what Elisha said when Elijah called him. He's he's acknowledging the Elijah mantle on Jesus. He's he's making a big statement here, but Jesus knew what was in his heart. He knew what was happening, and he said, "No one who doesn't burn the plows but looks back, turns their hand back to the plow again, goes back to that old way of living, is fit." for service in the kingdom of God he said you gotta you gotta answer that within yourself to be all in before you can say yes to this call he was making a backup plan so how do we respond you know if we had been in that conversation with Jesus how would I have responded and I think we all have to really think about that how would we have responded in that follow in that follow when jesus invites us to follow all in because he's inviting us to follow today he's inviting us to be all in today Let's just think about a few of these questions when somebody asks you about your faith you say i'm spiritual or do you say i'm a christian how do you frame that do you explore other philosophies or religions looking for truth Do you identify as Christian, but chart your own path in life based on what you feel like is best? Or maybe let's bring it here. If somebody asks you to join a team or be part of a life group, how do you respond? How do you think about that? Or maybe even here, do you float between a couple of different churches at once? Or have you said you're looking for something, but you're not quite sure exactly what it is yet? But Jesus said in Matthew 13, this kind of half-in, half-out commitment creates shallowly rooted Christianity. He said it's like seeds that fall on the rocky ground. And when the sun comes out, when it's hot, when it bakes that land, that those plants, they wither and die. That faith doesn't survive because it's shallowly rooted. It's, it's half-in. And we saw a lot of that, I think, during the pandemic. You probably know some people whose faith just didn't survive. Shallowly rooted faith. But Jesus calls us. He invites us to follow him. He invites us into the intimacy of that. He invites us into the purpose of that, into the passion of following him in an all-in way. And he says, there's so many things that I want to do with you. There's so many things I want to show you. There's so many ways I want to bless you and encourage you and be part of your life and be in with you. But we all have things that compete for that loyalty, we all have things that we have to surrender in order to be all in with Jesus. So, I wanted to give you today three ways that we go all in for Christ. First thing is that our identity in Christ has to be greater than our individual identity. Who are we? How do we think about ourselves? How do we describe ourselves? You know, Elijah's, Elisha's identity was that he was the son of a wealthy family, so a hard worker, plowing 12 teams. He was a leader, and this is who he was. He had a lot of status as a wealthy businessman, um, he, and here he is, he's trading in that identity for a new identity to become a servant of this man who was, had sort of a, a sketchy reputation. He left his elevated social position. It required a financial sacrifice to let go of that part of his identity that was tied to his wealth and his status. He did that to receive something greater. You know, I don't know how I would have responded to that call. I'd like to think that I would have said yes, too. But I don't know, right? We're really good at rationalizing to ourselves about the things that we don't want to let go of when God calls us. You know, maybe I didn't hear God right. Maybe that wasn't from God, but He wouldn't ask me to give up that, right? He wouldn't ask me to do that. He wouldn't ask me to say that. Or maybe I know the Bible says that this is this isn't the best thing, that this is wrong, but it was written a long time ago by really old men, and that's probably not relevant to me, definitely not relevant to my culture, not relevant to this time. I'll just put that aside, right? Or I deserve this. I'm owed something for what I've been through. Or Jesus understands. He loves me, he's gracious. He'll forgive me. He'll let it go. We got all kinds of things that we use to rationalize what we want to hold on to when Jesus invites us into that call. You know, our culture today tells us who we are. We figure out who we are by looking inward, right? You look at what do you like? What do you dislike? What's your passions? What's your interests? You know, what are your desires and your compulsions? Explore all those things because they will tell you who you are. They're all good for you. Find yourself by exploring these things. Create your own brand. You do you. You heard a lot of these kinds of things before? And you know what? This is a distortion of truth. It's a partly true thing. There's a lot of who we are that comes from within us, but we don't find ourselves by looking within us. We just get a distorted image of ourselves when we look through that cultural lens. Has anyone gone to like a circus and seen these wonky mirrors? I brought a picture today of these of these wonky mirrors where like part of you is distorted right here. This one, he's got this giant head. In the middle one, he's got like a giant torso. Well, that one on the side, his arm is really, really big. I don't know what's going on with his elbow. Right? You look in that, or you look in the back of a spoon, or the surface of water, to try to see yourself. You're going to get a, an, an untrue image of what you look like. It's distorted. It's not real. And that's what happens when we look at ourselves in that way. I don't know if any of here. Any of you here besides me have like this favorite mirror at home. Like there's some mirrors, and they just kind of expand you a little bit in the wrong places. So you don't. You avoid looking at that mirror. You're like, I need to go check me out in the good mirror. I, that's what we do because if you look in the wrong mirror, you're not going to see a true version of yourself. James chapter 1 verse 23 says, "Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror" and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So God's saying, hey, don't look in that mirror. Don't look in this mirror. Look into the mirror of the word of God to figure out who you are. You know, we are made in the image of God. So that means if we want to know who we really are, we got to look to Jesus. When we look at Jesus, we're looking at who we really are who we are designed to be the most authentic version of us doesn't come from looking inward it comes from looking upward to jesus in that that's the true reflection that's how we find our identity in christ we figure out who we are by looking at him not in the wrong mirrors all right number two. Second thing if we're gonna kill some kill some cows and burn some plows some things that we may have to give up to let go of, to be all out of in order to be all in with Jesus. Our kingdom, the kingdom culture is greater than our ethnic culture. Kingdom culture is greater than our ethnic culture. So sometimes being all in for Christ means that we got to let go of a piece of our ethnic culture to be obedient to God. You know, in this culture in this society there was great value for family so the expectation culturally would have been that Elisha would stay with his parents that he would stay there that he would take care of them into their old age that he'd farm that land that he'd create a heritage for his next generation that he'd have children and that he would take care of that 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 family's legacy would be sustained that was the family expectation but in order to be obedient to the call of God Elisha had to let that go he had to say, okay, this might be what society expects of me, but what God expects of me is something that's a little bit different. We see another story like this in the book of Ruth. Ruth the Moabite, she left her culture behind in Moab. She left her family behind. She left her gods behind. She left everything behind to go with Naomi into a new place, into a new land, into a new culture to serve God and to see a a brand new legacy. And you know, God honored that in her life. She got included in the genealogy of Jesus. She had a great, a great future. What was going to be hopeless became hopeful as a result of letting go of that. And Ruth 116, Ruth replied, don't, urge me to leave you or to turn back from you Naomi where you go I will go where you stay I will stay your people will be my people your God my God where you die I will die and there I will be buried that's all in all in mentality and you know we're called to make our first loyalty to kingdom culture to God's culture over our ethnic culture in Galatians chapter three, Paul talked a little bit about this. He said in verse 26, so in Christ, you are all children of God through faith for all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, not male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, Paul was dealing with something that was happening in the early church, where some of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were saying, hey, if you're going to join this movement, if you're going to become a Christian and you're a Gentile, you're not a Jew, you're going to have to become Jewish in order to become Christian. So they were saying, you need to get circumcised. You need to follow all of our traditions, all of our ritual purities. And, and Paul was saying, hey, no, 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 something new has happened. There's no rank, there's no status where one culture is above another, where, where one culture has to adopt the, the traditions of another another culture in order to become a follower of Christ so he's saying there's no tier system, there's no hierarchy in the kingdom of God so he might have been saying in our church today, he's in Christ, there's no American or Salvadorian, there's no Ethiopian or Indian there's no Korean or Ghanaian you are all one in Christ Jesus all we're all one part of a new identity in him and you know we love that here at word of life it's why you're here in this room is because you believe that that that's what that's what god calls us into right but a lot of times this is harder done than said so we think we're being loyal to christ when in fact we're being loyal to our culture and think about this who do you spend time with outside of this room on a Sunday? It's, it is easier to spend time with people from your own culture who eat the same food, who have the same experiences that we do, the same traditions, the same value systems. Without a doubt, it's easier to do that. But God calls us to be one, to cross boundaries, to build relationships with people who are different. You know, we all have mental maps. We have... Patterns of thinking and being that our culture imprints onto our, the software of our minds that it programs into us to tell us how to think, how to speak, how to behave, how to interact with other people. It's socially taught to us. And this is what culture is. You know, some aspects of our cultural heritage are not in conflict with kingdom culture. Right? Things like our language or our artistic expressions, or your foods. All of these things become part of the beautiful array of diversity that God brings into the kingdom. You know, there are, there are things that we can embed the gospel into these pieces of our culture. And God brings all those things together in the most rich and beautiful way possible. But to become part of a Christian family, we need to adopt kingdom culture. And sometimes that kingdom culture is not in alignment with our ethnic culture. So here's the thing. When I say kingdom culture, I'm not talking about Christian culture, because there's a lot of Christian culture that we layer on top of Christianity that really has nothing to do with Christianity, so whether it's the patterns of speech, we have little things that we say that are sort of Christianese, bless God, bless his holy name, hallelujah, blessed and highly favored. All these little, these little things that we adopt on ourselves or when I was growing up, there was a lot of Christian apparel So we had these Christian t-shirts that were like based on popular brands. And if you wore that, it meant that you were a Christian. Or maybe you grew up in the traditions where those Jesus ties and it's like Jesus is printed all over the tie or I had a friend, he had a Jesus vest. That was like stepping up when you had a Jesus vest and a Jesus tie or the Christian entertainment industry, nothing wrong with any of these things. But this isn't what we're talking about here. This isn't what God's asking us to adopt when we adopt kingdom culture, when we become loyal to kingdom culture. There's nothing wrong with that stuff, but God doesn't ask us to align with that. It's patterns of thinking, it's patterns of behavior, patterns of speech, how we interact with each other. These are things that we discover in God's word. This is where we discover kingdom culture. So we got to, what we have to do is we have to inspect our culture of origin, the things that we've been taught from childhood, the ways of being, the ways of interacting, we've got to inspect that against kingdom culture and say, how do these things line up? And where they don't line up, we don't adapt kingdom culture to our culture. We don't say, okay, I'm going to take a little bit of this and put this into this. We have to say... Our loyalty to kingdom culture has to be higher than our loyalty to our own culture, to our ethnic culture. Because there are aspects of every culture that are beautiful and wonderful, but there are also aspects of every culture that need to be transformed and renewed by the gospel. They need to change. They must change for us to grow in our faith. So what am I talking about? What are some things that are examples of parts of our culture that maybe we need to let go of to be all in with Jesus? So in American culture, and I'll start with me, right? So there's a lot of cultural value for tolerance. We need to be tolerant of other people's truth, tolerant of the way people live, the decisions that they make, and just say, it's all good, celebrate those decisions but here's the thing jesus called out a higher moral standard for us he didn't give us permission to just follow what we feel like being or what we feel like is true he said no here's the way to live here's the way to be or here's another example in some cultures confrontation is not socially acceptable that's rude. It's, it's not a good thing to confront anything. So if something bad happens, you just kind of stand back, passive-aggressively, avoid the situation as much as you can, and um, you don't confront. But you know what? In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gave us a template for how to lovingly confront things to bring about relational reconciliation, to resolve an issue, not just bury an issue. So if our culture is in conflict with that kingdom value for reconciliation, because confrontation is a no-no, then our kingdom loyalty has to be higher. Or here's another example, honor-shame cultures. There's a lot of cultures around the world that are honor-shame. In Africa, Asia, a lot of honor-shame cultures where, where honor is absolutely important. And in these cultures, it's better to hide sin in a family than to deal with it. Because if it gets exposed, then it brings shame on a family. And so what happens is there become ways of being where sin is okay as long as nobody knows about it. And it can lead to cycles of generational abuse because we can't talk about it we can't tell anybody about it we can't get anybody's help because that would be shameful on our family but you know what that's in conflict with kingdom culture kingdom culture is let's deal with this let's get healing from this let's get let's get deliverance from this let's get freedom from this let's address let's address the the things that need to shift in our patterns of being i'll give you one more and jesus taught us in matthew 19 verse 4 to 6 that, math, that marriage is between one man and one woman becoming one flesh. And you know what, this teaching is at odds with a lot of Western culture that defines marriage in a lot of ways today, with a lot of different combinations. And there's lots of cultures around the world that embrace polygamy. But this is at odds with what Jesus said. This is at odds with kingdom culture. So even if it's part of our ethnic culture, even if it's part of our cultural origin, it's something that we have to release to Christ if we're going to be all in with Jesus and say, okay, I'm going to adopt this way of thinking. I'm going to adopt this way of being. There's even parts of us, we take pieces of our own culture and marry it up to our Christian faith. This is called syncretism. You see this in some cultures that use fetishes, use little objects to have spiritual significance. It's not compatible with our Christianity. So we need to let it go rather than keep holding on to these things. We're called to live out our faith embedded in culture. We, we can't ostracize ourselves from our own culture and say, well, there's problems with it, so I'm not going to engage it. I'm not going to be part of it. We're called to live in it, to live embedded in it. Paul said, I become all things to all people. To the Jews, I become like the Jews. To the Gentiles, I become like the Gentiles. We're not called to live separate. We're, we're called to live into it and then to bring change from within those pieces of our culture to lovingly to speak the truth to lovingly reach out to the world around us. But you know what? These are, these are cultural sacred cows that a lot of times, if we touch them, become problematic for us. But you know what? We're called to prioritize kingdom culture over ethnic culture. Our, pri- our priority, our first loyalty has to be to kingdom culture and how we treat each other, how we love each other, how we interact with each other. How we speak to each other. All right. This is my my third point and my last one for you today. When we're going all in for Christ, having an all in mentality, being rooted in kingdom relationships must be greater than the restlessness of our soul. Being rooted in kingdom relationships must be greater than the restlessness of the soul you know choosing to put down roots put down relational roots is an all-in decision so Elisha said goodbye to his family and hello to Elijah it Elijah became his new family that he put down deep roots immediately into that and that became his new primary loyalty in Matthew chapter 10 When Jesus called his disciples and gave them his authority, this is what he said. He said, if you love your father or your mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or your daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. You know what? There's sometimes there's people in our lives that we have to leave behind to say yes to Jesus. They pull us back into our old habits, our old thinking, our old conversations. It's not like you cut people off, but the nature of the relationship changes. Who you go to for advice changes. Who you go to for support changes. Who you go to to be your examples, to be your role models in life changes. Because when that loyalty shifts, it's going to shift our relationships. We need a new set of relationships to help us move forward. Like Elisha needed Elijah. In order for him to answer that new call, he needed somebody who looked like Elijah, who could tell him, this is your calling. You're called to be a prophet of God. And so let me show you the way. Let me take you along the way. Let me, let me be an example to you. And that was something his family couldn't provide for him. They could love him. They could cheer him on. They could support him. They could bless him. But he needed a new set of relationships to go where God was calling him to go. You know, in America, we struggle a lot with relationships. Got a lot of lonely people. A lot of lonely people who hold themselves back from relationships with other people. You know, some of it, I think, is just keeping our options open in friendships, right? I don't know if you ran into this. Like, I'll, I'm not going to commit to you about going out with you on Friday night. Let me just see what's going on. Let me see what other things happen, and then I'll make a decision about what's my best option. Or you see that in romantic relationships, too. Like, I'm not going to fully commit and keep talking to a couple people and figure out which is going to be the best, right? Right? Maybe we'll go in with somebody. Even the idea of talking instead of committing, avoiding that commitment. Sometimes we have a different struggle where we're just sticking with people who are like us, like our culture, like from the same kinds of backgrounds. They're just easier to navigate. I got a friend, Dan. Is not Pastor Dan. I have a friend, Dan. I'm going to call him Dan. He's about 50 years old, hasn't been married yet. And he's dated many women, many women. And every time he's with somebody, he finds something to criticize. It's like, everything is great, but this thing. So I cannot commit to this person because of this one thing. Anyone know somebody like this? And it's like, he keeps cycling through women, and it's like, okay, this is, this is the perfect woman, I'm pretty sure. But what happens if somebody who's more perfect comes along? Right? So I got to hold out and wait for the more perfect thing why like why do we do that he's 50 years old lonely wants to get married but just can't bring himself to do it i think we put safeguards around our own autonomy our own independence don't count on me i need to be free or even safeguards around hurt and loss right if you're scared will this person be around in six months are they going to reject me once they get to know me will they Will they find something that's, will they find that thing that's just not quite perfect? And will that be the thing that ends this? Will I be around? Am I gonna find something? Safeguards against disappointments and the hard work of resolving conflict. It's better to hold myself back than be disappointed or hold myself back. It's better to do that than to disappoint somebody else with my shortcomings. And you know what the result is? There's a lot of loneliness And a lack of intimacy, shallow relationships. You see this in this upcoming generation, the struggling to build friendships, to build relationships. But you know what? Going all in with the relationships means a monogamous, single commitment marriage. You know, if you want the kind of heritage that Pastor Dan has, he's... He's, he's married for 65 years. He's got incredible children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren that love him, that honor him, a beautiful family. The, the legacy of a lifetime, that, that that's the 65-year marriage commitment is the kind of commitment that is required for that. You know, it's the same in church life. Building great relationships in church family requires this kind of all-in commitment for us to say, I'm in this thing. I'm going to resolve it. I'm going to work through it no matter what is hard. I'm going to choose to love. I'm going to choose to be in this. You know, relationships grow into the commitments that we make. It doesn't work the opposite way. We start with the commitment, and then the value that we place on that relationship makes the relationship valuable. The the loyalty that we place on a relationship makes that relationship valuable. So if you have a low level of commitment to a relationship, you're gonna have a shallow relationship. That's the way that works. Relationships aren't real until there's a commitment. Commitment is step one, then loyalty is step two. That's how we build real relationships. Don't wait for the relationship to make the commitment. Because it doesn't happen in that order. You know what? The fruit of loyalty is intimacy in relationships. That's what happens after loyalty. So many of us think that when we're lonely, we need to go somewhere else to find the relationship, wander from social setting to social setting, just waiting to find the right person. But the real answer is to stay put and to invest where God has put us. Invest in the relationships that God puts in our hands. And you know what? There's going to be painful moments. There for sure will be painful moments. It's part of our humanity. I think a lot of times churches get a bad rap as this is a place where people get hurt. But I'm going to tell you, wherever you get people gathering together in relationships, people get hurt. Is a byproduct of who we are. And we just need to, we, as painful as it is, it is, and there are things that shouldn't happen because we are fallen, messed up people, but God calls us to work through those things. And you know what? What's gained as a result of working through a painful moment goes far beyond the loss itself. You know, I've heard people say, I don't really know anybody at church or I've struggled to build connections, so I'm going to keep moving, trying to find someone that restlessness Culture tells us to keep moving to find where we belong, but the more we move around, the lonelier we are. You want to know what the cure for loneliness is? It's faithfulness. It's the antidote to loneliness, faithfulness. We think we got to move on to find what's missing, but the true solution is to put down deep roots. Intimacy is built through the web of promises and commitments to each other that bind us together. You know, I'm inspired when I moved here. It's a very transient area. You've got a lot of people who move in with the military and are here for a season, move out, or on diplomatic assignments, go away for a season. But it's been beautiful to see how quickly people are saying, oh, I'm going to put down deep roots very quickly. And these are going to be relationships that I carry with me wherever I go. And that when they cycle back into this area, they come right back into this home again and say, this is my home. This is, this is the place where I belong, whether I'm here or whether I'm deployed in somewhere else. I know that this is where I have roots. This is where I belong. I think it's such a beautiful thing because those relational connections are what do it. And you know what? As difficult as it is, it is worth it to put down those kinds of roots. Uh, Pastor Russell, if you'd come and I'm going to close. You know what, there's a lot of rewards to having this kind of all-in mentality. Not just in our relationships, but in our relationship with Jesus. He calls us to be all-in with him, to give our all. But you know what, he doesn't call us where he hasn't already been. The word, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for God's love for us is hesed. And that word means loyal love. It means that God has been loving us as this relentless, never-ending force. He's loyal to us in the good times. He's loyal to us when we're at our worst, when we make mistakes. He's loyal to us when we are shining bright, when we are exactly what he needs us to be, what he's called us to be. He is loyal to us through it all. He's loyal to us before we ever knew his name. He was loyal to us. He continued to love us. He had faith in us. Jesus had faith in you. And you know what? His love gives us value. His love for us places value on our life. He elevates our status. Our intrinsic value becomes elevated because of the love of Jesus. He went all in for us. He gave his all. He died for us. That's how faithful he was for us. And you know what? He's the only way. John 14, verse six, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. It's not a lot of ways to God. There's just one. And Jesus's arms are extended wide open to us. No matter what our background is, you know, no matter what our cultural baggage or residue has been, or our life experiences, no matter what brokenness, what intentional sin, whatever problems we have, whatever challenges or struggles. However we've identified ourselves in the past, Jesus loves us. His arms are open wide to us. And you know what? It's not all cost. There's a lot of rewards to following Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, it says, Then Peter said to Jesus, We've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? And Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the son of man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And here's this important verse in verse 29. And everyone who's given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. See, you can't outgive Jesus. You can't give so much that the scales are out of balance. Because he said, I'm going to give a hundred times. Whatever you give up for me, I will give a hundred times over back to you in many different ways in family, in finance, in relationships, in your calling, in your purpose. He said, but many who are the greatest now will be the least important then, and those who seem the least important now will be the greatest then. If you feel like like Elisha and you've given up everything, wealth, status, and now you're a servant at the bottom, he said, don't worry about it. There's going to come a day when God will elevate you. You will see that shift happen. You know, Elijah's reward when he ex- exchanged social status, he got spiritual authority. Book of Kings tells us that Elisha performed twice as many miracles as his mentor Elijah. He received a double portion of anointing as a result of what he surrendered. Jesus said in John 10:10, 10, 10, "The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy." That's the work of the enemy is to take from us. He said, but I have come that you may have life and life to the full, life more abundant, life more purposeful, life more whole, life more free, life to the full, life dripping over with joy, a life with peace, a life of fulfillment, a life of blessing. That's the life that he calls us to.